We saw last week that we too are supposed to follow Jesus into the asylums of our city. And the way we do this, we saw last week, was through hospitality in our homes, through our vocations, and through our citizenship, our our life in the city. Now this week, we just listened to John chapter 6, and it begins with Jesus, once again, concerned for people's welfare. This massive crowd, thousands of people, they've followed Jesus. They've been eating and drinking his words. But now, they're physically hungry. They're physically tired. And this concerns Jesus. He's touched by their needs. He hears their cries. And so he turns to his disciples and he gives them a little test. Have they too learned to be concerned for people in their need? Have they too learned to be concerned for the well-being of people? Have they learned that Jesus has come to show us that God wants people to be well, well well-rested, well-nourished, healed? So the disciples, they look at this enormous crowd, thousands of teeming, hungry people, and Philip says, no way, it is too much. The needs are beyond anything we can handle. We could put all of our money together, and we we couldn't do this. And then Andrew, he pipes up. Like Philip, he has no stinking clue what to do. But Andrew has learned an important lesson that Philip has not learned. Andrew has learned that the starting point is always to bring whatever is available to the attention of Jesus. Because he can do things that we've never imagined. That he has power. That he can create things that we could not have guessed. And, and part of the Christian faith is the expectation that God can do something we've not imagined yet. So Andrew, apparently he had spotted a little boy that had some bread sticking out of his backpack. He said, there's this kid. He's got enough food for his own little picnic. And once again, in John chapter 6, as he did in John chapter 2, Jesus assumes the role of the host. John chapter 6 verse 10, he invites everybody to sit down. And then John adds this lovely little touch to the story. There was lots of grass for people to sit on. This is just good literature. 
He's putting that into your mind. He wants you to see that. It's a striking scene. He wants you to imagine. It's springtime near the Lake of Galilee. The wildflowers are in bloom. There's a gentle and warm sun. And so many families are sitting, lying down on the grass. And Jesus takes the bread like you've seen me do hundreds of times. He gives thanks. So whoever's child that is, I'm getting super distracted I can't hold the line. A lot of families are sitting. They're lying down on the grass. Jesus holds the bread. He gives thanks to the Father. And then he and his disciples distribute the bread to all of these people. You're supposed to watch that. You're supposed to see in your mind Jesus walking up to this family here and this group here and this loner over here and he's giving them bread. He's giving them fish as much as they want. And it's a wonderful meal, a wonderful picnic. It's it's a huge party. All these hungry people, remember, they were hungry and there is no grocery store. And they are too far from anywhere to get anything to eat. And so Jesus is walking around, giving them bread, giving them fish, as much as they can eat, as much as they wanted. And there they are, resting quietly on the grass, looking at the beautiful lake, sharing in little groups, chatting joyfully. It's a little taste of heaven. And Jesus is there with his disciples going around from group to group, from person to person to see, do you have everything you need? Do do you want some more? Like a great host. What a glorious day it must have been. And then when the meal is over and they tidy up the dishes and they pack up the leftovers, 12 baskets full. Do you remember if you were with us back in chapter 2? Jesus was at that wedding that ran out of wine and he transformed an excessive amount of water into amazing wine. And now here, he multiplies five loaves and two fish into an excessive quantity of food. That's God for you. Abundant. Abundant love, abundant giving, abundant generosity. God loves us abundantly. So the crowd, they realize that something extraordinary has happened, right? They didn't see any cartloads coming up filled with bread. Filled. That's what it would have taken to, to feed this many thousands of people. And they start talking about what remarkable thing has just happened how this remarkable feast has come out of Jesus and so they decide we want him for a king I mean who wouldn't want this powerful leader for a king for a caretaker Jesus figures out something's afoot he figures out that in this um this this moment they're about to take him and use him And so Jesus slips away quietly up into the mountains. He knows that their faith is only at the beginning stage, that they're following him because he's healed some folks and he's fed them. And their faith, you see, he knows is centered upon themselves and their needs. And so they will use him. And this isn't good. 
So Jesus slips away up to the mountain to pray. And he prays. And he prays. And he keeps praying. And he keeps praying until it gets very late at night. And he's still praying. Now what are the disciples doing all this time? They're down there with this crowd that's a little agitated now. Because they had an agenda, right? And now they can't fulfill it. And so they look over to Jesus' followers. And here you've got to look at them. You've got to see them in your mind. Jesus is gone and he doesn't come back. And they are lost. And they are plunged into confusion. And what what do they do? Where do they go? Where is Jesus? So they decide to get back in their boat. The only boat there. Before they no longer have a chance to escape, it's dark. There's this agitated crowd, and they cross the lake of Galilee, and they head back to Capernaum, where Peter lived and where Jesus was staying. That's where he was living at this time. So they get in their boat, and they start rowing back across the lake. They escape the crowd, and suddenly, as can happen with this lake, a storm comes up. Quick. This lake of Galilee can be quite treacherous. One moment it's calm and quiet. Remember this mountain Jesus is up on? Winds come racing down this mountain. And suddenly this lake is very rough. And they're afraid for their lives. Not from the crowd. Not anymore. Now they're afraid. Can you imagine being out in a massive expanse of water at night? When you could actually still see darkness. And there's a storm. And there's huge waves. And then all of a sudden, there's Jesus walking on the water. So they're even more afraid because people don't walk on water. You don't have to have JMU education to know people don't walk on water. You don't have to be a modern, enlightened person. They are petrified. Is it a ghost? And Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And then they receive him into the boat, and they get to harbor. It's happened to me before. Seven years ago, the roar of the wind was deafening, and the waves were crashing over me. And I didn't know it, but I was just a few days from a breakdown resigning my church, and being comatose in my garden. And one day, standing in the doorway, going to my bedroom, as all of this is going on around me, I'm on the edge of losing touch with reality. And I heard a voice say, It's me. Don't be afraid. And I was able, by the grace of God, to take Jesus on board. And he brought me safely to harbor. He will, you too. John chapter 6, verse 22, for the rest of the chapter, Jesus teaches them what all of that was about. The feeding of the thousands, The walking on the water. He teaches them and we learn right toward the end of the chapter that this was a sermon that he delivered in a synagogue on the Sabbath. He says, look, the miracle of the fish and the bread, that was a sign. 
That was a sign designed to lead your eye, your mind, your imagination, and your heart. It was a sign designed, it was a sign designed to lead you to open up your understanding so that you can see I alone can satisfy the hungers of your heart. That I am the food that you are hungry for. Look at verse 26, John chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, right? They didn't interpret the fish and the loaf as a sign. What does a sign do? A sign points. They didn't look along the trajectory of the sign of the miracle of the fish and the loaves. Instead, what did they do? Like a dog whose master is pointing over there, they stared at the finger. They stared at the fish and the loaves. They didn't look at the sign of the fish. You are seeking me not because you saw signs. You didn't see the sign. You ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now drop down to verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Okay, cool. Give us that bread. And Jesus said, I'm the bread. I am the bread. There's no that about it. See, suddenly he said, I'm the sign. And they kept looking back. And instead of saying, give us yourself, they said, well, what about that bread? So obtuse. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus is saying is what matters is not what Jesus can do for you. What matters is who Jesus is. And until they recognize who Jesus really is, they may be fed with bread and fish, but there is a deeper hunger inside of them that will not be satisfied. Only when you and I humble ourselves and believe in Jesus and turn our lives toward him, only then can we taste bread from heaven. Drop down to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then it's sort of like, okay, we're starting to see this now. Okay, stop staring at the finger. Look at the thing. Okay, we're looking at you. And then Jesus says, and the bread that I give. Yeah, 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 it's you. He says, no, it's my flesh. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh. Do you see how first he gets them to say that he's the bread, and then he says, now let me tell you what I really mean by saying I'm the bread. I'm not just talking about me in a metaphorical sense. I'm not just talking about my teachings. I'm talking about my actual physical flesh. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Right? This sounds like the walking dead. You have no life in you whoever feeds on my flesh. Every time I read that line, I think of that scene at the end of um, the return of the king with the bad thing that's going to feast on your flesh. Anyway. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's that's tough. 
That, that, that's hard stuff. So you know what a lot of us do? You know, you know what we try to do with that? We spiritualize it. We try to interpret Jesus' words as metaphors. Some, he's, he's doing some kind of spiritual talk, and he's really talking about a non-physical munching. He's really talking about praying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into your heart. He's really talking about placing your faith in Jesus. He's really talking about having a relationship with him. But Jesus insists, no, I'm talking about munching and sipping my flesh and my blood. And the rest of the New Testament insists on this too. Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 and chapter 11. He insists that this business of eating and drinking must include actual physical eating and drinking. Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper. Where his body and blood are in a mysterious way offered to believers to eat and drink. You see, Jesus is declaring that in order for him to be truly united with his believing followers, they must ingest him. Those who do this will have eternal life now and be raised with new bodies. Those who do this will have eternal life now. They will draw down on the life of heaven while they live on this earth and in the new heavens and new earth their bodies will be raised immortal like I said this is tough I doubt any of us are surprised by verse 52 people started arguing they didn't like it I mean the Bible speak is something like there arose a dispute it's the same thing going on in a lot of you Baptist minds right now. Arguing, thinking how this can't be true. Now it's important that we realize John chapter 6 strikes a very careful balance. It's a huge chapter, right? I mean, 70 verses. It took like 30 minutes to read it earlier. <laughs> this is one of Jesus' longest sustained teachings in all the Bible. And he goes on to clearly teach that we've got to push past one-dimensional understandings of what he's doing and saying. That just like he doesn't allow us in verses 41 to 59 to interpret his words in a metaphorical way, he also doesn't allow us in verses 60 to the end of the chapter to interpret his words in a purely physical way. We have to push past any one-dimensional reading. In other words, we can't just treat this like it's all an extended metaphor for going to a Billy Graham crusade and praying a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. And we also can't treat this as if it's an extended teaching on the Lord's table being magic. He's not saying that anyone who saunters up to the table and carelessly without real faith, somehow they're magically saved. No, God isn't fooled. Eating and drinking at the Lord's table is no good if there's no faith. It's no good without the Spirit, he says. And even still, after he gives that qualification, even still it's tough. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
because it was as gross to them as it is to us. It was as mind-bending to them as it is to us. It was as awkward and difficult to believe as it is for us. The majority of that huge, hungry, happy, well-fed crowd said, well, if that's the score, we're out of here. So what about you? That's the score. What about us? Do you believe that Jesus alone can satisfy the ravenous hungers of your heart? That only Jesus can fill the massive God-sized vacuum in your soul? Have you turned your life? Have you turned your attention, your mind toward him? He is offering you real, intimate, personal friendship. And if you will accept that offer from him, he will save you from your sins, from your guilt, and from the ravenous hunger, the enormous vacuum inside of your heart. Jesus is offering all of us, each one of us, from Rose all the way up to David Cooper. He's offering each one of us an open door into the mystery of love. A secret relationship with the source of all light and life and goodness and truth and beauty. Now let's go back. Let's go back to where we started. Remember Jesus standing on the mountainside looking at the vast crowd of people who are hungry and tired. And remember what he did with his disciples. He gave them a test to see if they had been paying attention. To see if they had been beholding the lamb. To see if they had been watching and giving their attention to him. What about you? Have you been watching the Lamb? Have you been watching the Lamb in John's Gospels? John's Gospel, have you been paying attention last week? The central lesson we learned as we watched the Lamb was that the vulnerable, the powerless, the put aside matter to Jesus. And this must be translated into the way we live in our homes, the way we work at our jobs, and the way we vote and engage in our city. Are we going to go with Him into the asylums of Harrisonburg? We must follow the Lamb. And like Andrew when we come to needs that are absolutely too much for our hospitality, for our work, for our political imagination, when we come up to these kind of needs, learn from Andrew to take whatever is at hand and bring it to the attention of the Lord of the host. And so, as we imitate Jesus with his focus on the weak, the vulnerable, to put aside, as we learn from Jesus a relentless loyalty to the rejected, as we learn this from Jesus, we're seeing that Jesus is saying, yes, 
I demand that your heart and hands and head move with compassion for those in need. But this week, we are seeing another part of that lesson. We are seeing that Jesus not only demands we move toward the vulnerable, he also demands that social activism can never be the meal. It will not satisfy the desires of our heart. In John chapter 6, we're told over and over that the only thing that satisfies the desires of our heart is not, it's not helping the weak. It is feasting on Jesus. He is the food that wells up in us to eternal life. We must resist the mistake of going to the asylum bereft of a simultaneous move toward Christ and feasting on him. We must resist the mistake of a social activism that is bereft of an even deeper move into Jesus himself. In John chapter 6, we're told over and over that we must feast on Jesus if we are going to follow Jesus into the dark places of the world. Because when we follow Jesus out of this room, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our dorm rooms, into our jobs, into our city, when we do that, when we follow him, we will again and again turn the corner and discover we are smack in the middle of Gethsemane. That we've arrived at Golgotha. And we are simply not adequate to the task without being deeply rooted, deeply nurtured in the bread that alone gives us life. It is only when feasting on Jesus precedes working for Jesus that we can survive. It is only when our worship is at the head of our work that we can resist the idolatrous powers that exist in every job and will beat us into their image. One of the most significant distinguishing features of the Christian's way of being in the world is that worship precedes work. This world we live in, this world we work in, it is a world where violence and money and sex make absolute demands on us. And they will punish any one of us that resists their demands. And the only way we can escape the serious, dangerous threats of a real darkness in our world is by feasting on Jesus. Like I said, this is one of the most significant distinguishing features of the weird thing that we are, Christians. Christians are odd folks. We start our weeks out on Sunday. 
We refuse to buy into the view that Saturday and Sunday are the weekend. We put a wall up on Saturday and say the weekend is over. And we start our weeks here today. We are odd folks. We start out the important work of our week by not working. We gather here on the first day of the week. As Christians, this is how we start our week. Not in work, but in worship. Whatever you're doing, we say to each other, quit it. Whatever you're saying, shut up. Some of us don't. We don't use the S word in our house. Sit down, we say, and stop. Stop doing things. Stop doing things. Fold your hands. Take a deep breath. Stop and worship. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, we stop speaking, we stop making, we enter into a place of worship, we gather with the congregation, we sing and pray and listen to God, and then we leave here with the blessing of God in the power of the Spirit to go back into the marketplace of the world. That is the arena where we wrestle for the prize. That is the racetrack where we wage the contrast, the contest for the wreath. And it's this rhythm that is so important. Worship and work, liturgy and labor. But it's not just Sunday worship. Our feast on Christ has to overflow the Sunday worship service and extend itself into our homes and into our personal rhythms. Each of us, in all of our diverse vocations, we have to dedicate appropriate time every day to enter deeply into silent conversation with Christ. Because it is in Christ that we feed on. The bread of life. It is in Christ that we know we are loved. And it is in Christ that the hungers of our hearts are satisfied. And so every day, we have to start our day the same way we start our week. Not in work, but in worship. Not in labor, but in prayer. Every day, we have to dedicate appropriate time to get quiet with Jesus so that we can share with him our lives, our anxieties, our fears. The devotional that I use and the people in our office we use for the last week, it's been asking us for, the, for a while now, we've come across this question. Sit with Jesus, look him in the eye and tell him what you're anxious about, what you're fearing, what you're scared of, what's bothering you. We've got to do this every day. We've got to share our life with him and we've got to receive from him enlightenment for that day. And this requires an enormous act of faithfulness because we are constantly bombarded by the noise and excesses of iPhones. A technologically saturated culture. A a society that has relinquished every square inch to communication. And the act of faithfulness it takes to resist that for just 15 minutes 
is enormous. Faithfulness to personal prayer requires an incredible effort to resist being swallowed up in frenetic activism. So every week we come together here. This is the medic tent behind the front lines. You, on your job, at JMU, in your homes, as citizens, that is the front lines. This is not. My job isn't to try to get you to be resource for stuff the church does. The job of the church is to support you. You are on the front lines. I grew up thinking that the church was the front lines and everybody in the room were resources for the programs of the church because we've got to educate our children. We've got to have a wana on this night. We've got to do this on that night. And so I would stand up to preach and look at a group of people that I needed to convince to give themselves to the work of the kingdom through the church. But that's exactly the opposite. It's as a neighbor and a worker and a citizen that you are in the battlefield. So we come here on Sunday. This is the medic tent behind the front lines. You're not fuel for mission. We don't add mission to our church. Our church, when it scatters out into the world, is living mission 24-7. And so the job of this place, this institution, is to be a resalinization plant for salt that loses its saltiness. Every week we gather here to gaze with delight and gratitude and love on our Creator and our Redeemer. Every week we gather here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to immerse ourselves in his fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Father. And just like the people on the hillside, we not only feast on his word, but suddenly he's moving among us. Mike, do you have all that you need? Serving us himself. We feast on his word, and then we feast on his flesh and blood. And Jesus is here like he was on that mountainside, going from person to person, serving us. And then he, stand, and then he sends us out. Out to our homes, out to our jobs, out to our city, out into this good but broken world where we live ordinary lives. And it's in our ordinary lives, through our vocations, through our jobs and families and our involvement in the city, in the arts and in the politics and in the business and in the sports and all the other ways that we live out our lives. The ways we live and play and rest and work and all of that, we are living as Christians. We are living redemptively, reconciling, reflecting Christ's work of reconciliation, cultivating God's good but broken creation, working to renew a fallen world, bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.